Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, and I'm co-host of this channel. The Vietnamese victory over French forces at Dien Bien Phu in 1954, which ended almost a century of French colonial rule in Indochina, is one of the most famous events in the history of anti-colonialism. How were the Vietnamese communists able to achieve this remarkable victory over a much more powerful colonial opponent? This is a question that Chris Gosher seeks to answer in his new book, The Road to Dien Bien Phu, A History of the First War for Vietnam, published by Princeton University Press this year. In doing so, Gosher re-enters the vexed debate about the relative importance of nationalism and communism in Vietnam's struggle against foreign powers. He puts forward a compelling argument about the importance of war communism to the Vietnamese victory over the French. Chris Gosher is Professor of History and International Relations at the University of Quebec in Montreal, Canada, and a prize-winning author of works on the modern history of Vietnam. Chris, thanks again so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies for the second time. Well, Patrick, thank you and your listeners for, for having me today. It's a real pleasure. Now, although this book is about modern Vietnamese history, it actually deals with three of the biggest political ideas of the 20th century, anti-colonialism, nationalism, and communism. And you start off uh, the book with a quote by that famous anti-colonial intellectual, Franz Fanon, who's, I think, on the reading list of every post-colonialism course you, you do at university, uh, who was involved with the independence movement in Algeria. And uh, as you show, Fanon was very impressed with the Vietnamese victory over the French in Dien Bien Phu. And he asked at the time, how were the Vietnamese able to do that? And your book seems to be essentially an answer to, or an attempt to answer that question. Would that be right? Yeah, you're, you're, you're spot on. You, you are. Um, I stumbled across that quote while reading The Wretched of the Earth, which is indeed this famous treatise that he wrote in, and published in 1961 uh, on, on colonialism, a critique of uh, French colonialism in particular. And it was in that book that he asked that question and it struck me. So yes, to answer your question, that is, I wanted to answer that question. Uh, you know, what was it, as he said, that allowed the Vietnamese uh, army to bring down the French army in a conventional battle at Dien Bien Phu in, in May of 1954? The research for this book is so impressive. You, you use the contemporary scholarly research in English and French, uh, the French colonial records, and an enormous number of Vietnamese sources. Can you tell us about the, the research and the sources that um, you use to write this book? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think that's, uh, to, to a large extent, what allowed me to answer this question, uh, or at least try to answer the question which uh, France Fanon posed in 1961. Uh, so on the one hand, 
I, I discovered, as, as some of your listeners may know, I spent a lot of time in France about 20 years before coming here to, to Montreal in 2005. And um, while I was in France in the 1990s and, and in the early 2000s, they started opening up the, the French military archives and the colonial archives um, on the, the Indochina War, the French Indochina War between 1954, I'm sorry, between 1945 and 1954, and the Algerian one as well, which we can get into a little bit later, between 1954 and 1962. So kind of this bigger Indo-Algerian war. Um, so I was at the right place at the right time where I could get access to French archival documents. Now, if, you, if I could just say a little bit about that, that would be French reports, military reports, that would be colonial reports as well. Uh, but it was also a lot of uh, intercepted documents. Uh, so they were Vietnamese documents to which I had access, uh, often in Vietnamese or in French translation. Um, uh, when I say intercepted documents, I had access to a lot of uh, uh, what the French intelligence service were intercepting, uh, radio intercepts. So uh, it allowed me to have uh, remarkable access to the Vietnamese side as well as to the French side. And so that was the that, that was the French side there. Again, I was kind of in the right place at the right time in France in order to, to access a, a massive information. On the Vietnamese side, it was also the opening up of Vietnam in the 1990s, um, and I think it's still going on uh, at the archival level, but also uh, the Vietnamese were publishing a massive amount of materials, much like the Chinese were doing after the end of the Cold War. Uh, of course, they wanted to kind of present their side of the things, but in wanting to present their side of the things, they also if I can put it this way, they presented a lot of things. Uh, so I had remarkable access to, for example, what the Vietnamese were doing with their radios, uh, which is part of the book that we can talk about a little bit later, what they were doing with their police services, and of course, what they were doing with their uh, building their state and building their, their army as well. So your question is really important. I, I, was, I was kind of at the right place at the right time, both for being in France and for being able to go to Vietnam. Uh, to, to snoop around. Um, I did less work in the archives, to be honest with your listeners, uh, because I had so much access to this published material. And, and perhaps I could say one last thing is that at the National Library in, in Hanoi, there's a big collection of what's called the Ris Resistance Collection for the Indochina War viewed from the Vietnamese side from 1945 to 54. And I had access to that resistance collection there. On the surface, the book is a study of how the Vietnamese were able to defeat the French at Dien Bien Phu, but maybe more importantly, you, you seem to re-enter the debate about the relative importance of nationalism and communism in Vietnamese anti-colonialism. And you, you seem to argue that nationalism has perhaps been overemphasized and communism underplayed. Have I got that right? No, I think you I think you have it right. If you look at the way historians have written about the Vietnam War, both the French one and the American one since so oh, I would say the 1950s in France and certainly from the late 1960s and 1970s uh, in the US and in the other parts of the Anglophone world, uh, the uh, the explanatory power of nationalism dominates uh, and communism is discussed, but it's 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 not as important as I think it should be. So yes, to answer your question, um, I didn't want to throw nationalism out. I believe it still is important, but I did want to take a closer look at what was going on, uh, if you will, on 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 the communist side. And so nationalism, 
how would I put this? I think I put it at the conclusion. I cite Richard Overy, who's a specialist of the Second World War. Uh, it, it can influence how things go. It's certainly important, as we see in Ukraine, but it's not the only uh, sole factor that can explain the victory of the Vietnamese army, again, at Dien Bien Phu uh, in, in 1954. There's a number of other factors involved. And of course, uh, one of those is uh, the nature of communism itself. Whenever we think of the Indochina Wars, we tend to think of North and South Vietnam. But your book introduces a, a really helpful, I think, new metaphor for understanding the, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam's political authority in Vietnam after 1945. And that is the archipelago state. Can you explain to the listener what you mean by this term? Yeah, thank you, Patrick, for, for that question. Um, it's, it's a really important one. I think... We have a tendency to see Vietnam either as in its kind of its S-like shape that we see on the map today, or we see it in its two-block form, uh, which emerged with the Geneva uh, Accords, which ended the French Indo-China War in 1954 with a communist North Vietnam and um, a non-communist South Vietnam allied with the Americans. Uh, uh, the the problem is is that there's a tendency to push one of those two things back into the past, uh, and that's problematic uh, because. If you look at if you start at the beginning, as I tried to do in 1945 and 46, it is true that for a very short period of time, Ho Chi Minh, uh, in the wake of World War II, uh, was able to create the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, which did. It, it wasn't easy. It was very fragile, but it did indeed control Vietnam for north from north to south. Uh, the problem is, is that the French came back. War broke out in the south in September of 1945 and in all of Vietnam in the north in uh, December of 1946. And here I want to get to I really want to answer your question is that sovereignty, uh, the control of the state uh, at this point, Ho Chi Minh state shattered. I think that's important. And we see it in all kind of wars. And certainly even it's shattered in Ukraine today uh, as we speak. Uh, but in Vietnam between 1945 and 1954, uh, it shattered. So there was no S-like Vietnam. There was no North and South Vietnam. It was what I call this constellation of competing uh, states. Um, of course, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, uh, Ho Chi Minh state was still there. The French colonial state was there. And as I try to introduce in the book as well early on, the French uh, are going to uh, foster the development of an associated state of Vietnam. Uh, so it's kind of yet another uh, state at work in collaboration with the French. And these three states are competing for people. They're competing for materials. Uh, we Again, we see this in other wars as well. There's nothing necessarily unique about this, but it is something that I wanted to show to kind of complicate the way we've studied the, the wars for Vietnam from 1945, I would say, all in, until the, the end of the third Indochina War in 1991. So Again, back to your question, uh, it's, a, it's a constellation. I play with this idea of an archipelago state. So the Vietnamese state run by Ho Chi Minh was an archipelago state with a capital that was in the, the hills of northern Vietnam, but it had islands scattered all around Vietnam, even into Laos and Cambodia. We can get into that a little bit later. Uh, but it had islands, which it had to connect. And we can talk about how you connect an archipelago. But one of the arguments is in my book is that you do. And, 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 and you can see it in other type of wars uh, as well. Many people, including me, I have to say, tend to understand that the communist state of North Vietnam was established after the Geneva Accords in 1954. But what your book shows very convincingly is that the communists had actually started to construct all of the elements of a communist state in Vietnam pretty much immediately after Ho Chi Minh declared independence in September 1945. 
Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think just to remind your listeners, if you don't mind, you do have uh, the creation of uh, a Vietnamese Communist Party in 1930, which was quickly rebaptized the Indo-Chinese Communist Party uh, in that same year, uh, which would develop in the 1930s with a lot of difficulty. It would develop again during World War II when Ho Chi Minh would uh, return to Vietnam in 1941. He would create a nationalist front, much like Mao Zedong had done in China. Uh, before him, uh, and that was the, the Viet Minh, uh, which was created in, in 1941. It was created by the communists. There's no denying that. It is important that we note that it was created by a communist party. Was it nationalist? Of course it was. Uh, and he would uh, use that front uh, to create a coalition, a wide coalition, which I can give examples for that all over the, the world history, if you like. Uh, but he would be able to take advantage of the, the end of World War II to take power in 1945. To get to your question again, because, again, it's another important question. The communists would run the, the Viet Minh. They would run the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. But we have to keep in mind uh, if you don't mind, that at the beginning, they were a minority. There were only 5,000 communists in September of 1945 out of a population of 20 million Vietnamese. Uh, so they were in a, a, a weak position, but they did hold important places, um, positions, excuse me, uh, within the Democratic Republic of Vietnam uh, from September 1945 until the end. Now, what I try to argue in my book, Patrick, is that war itself helped the communists to consolidate their hold over the state. Uh, and they're going to do this in two periods, the period between 1945 and 1950, which is kind of what I consider to be the guerrilla war period. And then, and I'm really trying to get to your, your question here, 1950, when the Chinese communists come to power and they throw their, their, their support behind Ho Chi Minh, this opens up a new chapter, the second half of the Indochina War, when there's a new type of war which emerges, a conventional war with conventional battles against the French. And there's also so a revolution, uh, a military revolution, but it's it's also goes in tandem with a, a political revolution from 1950, thanks to Chinese aid. And this is where to, again, to answer your question, before 1954, four years before, the Vietnamese, with help from the Chinese, they're able to consolidate their hold over the, the state. And that's very important. So they're going to use this new chapter in the war to expand their control over the state between 1950 um, and 1954. And they will be, by the end of the, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, in May of 54, in a position of power. Do they control everything? No. Uh, but do they control much more than they did in 1945? Absolutely. Can we just go back to 1945 for a minute, where, as you were saying before, your book shows, again, really clearly that the, the communists were, were weak. Um, there was, I think you say, there's a limited number of trained cadre. There's, there's no regular army. The administration is very weak. So they, as you say, had to rely to a considerable extent on various groups of, of non-communist anti-colonial Vietnamese. Can you tell us about these other groups and the relationship between the communists and the non-communists in the DRV in this early period, say 1945 to, to 50 or 51? Yeah, yeah, that's, again, another good question. I would say there's two types of non-communists. I'm simplifying here, uh, but I think largely this is accurate, what I'm going to say. Uh, on the one hand, you have a group of non-communists who were uh, nationalists, they were anti-colonialist, and they were also anti-communist. Uh, this group is the Vietnamese Nationalist Party, uh, which was formed in the late 1920s, uh, and which came to life uh, as did 
did the, the Vietnamese Communist Party around this turning point of, of 1930. Uh, so this is this is an important group of non-communists uh, who are there in the late 20s, 1930s, 1940s, and they're there in 1945 and 46 as well. Uh, still with this group, they will oppose the French in 1945 and 1946, but they will also oppose the Vietnamese communists. They knew the Vietnamese communists well. They they disagreed with their illogical promises for Vietnam. They, they and, and just they were right. They, the Vietnamese nationalists, communists wanted to create a communist government, and they did not. So what happened here is you have the outbreak of the first uh, Vietnamese civil war. Uh, in 1945 and 1946, before the French actually can return uh, to to take colonial control of of, uh, of Indochina. So this first group is symbolized by the Vietnamese Nationalist Party. They know the Vietnamese Communist Party and they disagree with them. And there will be the outbreak of a civil war uh, in 45 and in particular in 46. There's other groups as well, religious groups in the South, uh, of which uh, uh, Sean McKell has has, uh, has written and others have as well. Uh, so there is a, a coalition of, of anti-communist Vietnamese nationalists. That's one group. There's another group who come out of the, obviously out of the 1930s as well, and they are ready to cooperate, collaborate uh, with uh, the Vietnamese uh, communists led by Ho Chi Minh in 1945 and 1946. Uh, They tend to be socialist, uh, Republicans, uh, Democrats. They they are not as anti-communist as the Vietnamese Nationalist Party. Uh, they are willing to cooperate with the Vietnamese communists because they believe uh, that the Vietnamese communists uh, are sincere in their promises not to impose a single party communist state. Again, we're in 1945, 1946, as you said, uh, Patrick, and they, they make a bet. To be really honest, they 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 bet and they make a bargain with the Vietnamese communists that we're all in this together. Our, our number one enemy is the French colonialists. We will fight them, and then we'll work things out later. And they believe that the they believed Ho Chi Minh when he said that there would be some sort of a kind of a democratic uh, government coalition. The coalition will continue to exist as a, a democratic republican form of government. Um, don't forget, in 1945, 1946, Ho Chi Minh didn't even know that the, that Mao Zedong was going to win in China. Uh, so no one knew the future at that time. I think it's important to keep that in mind. So I hope that's clear for, 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 for you and your listeners. There was these two wings of Vietnamese non-communism, kind of a, uh, anti-communist, uh, and they were Republicans as well, nationalism. And then this group they, they, who were willing to work with the Vietnamese Communist Coalition, thinking that it was indeed a coalition. Uh, let me just end there by saying they would be disappointed from 1950. Uh, when they saw the Chinese communist victory and they saw the Chinese aiding uh, Ho Chi Minh. And of course, in 1950, there were signs even before uh, the the Vietnamese communists made it clear that they were on their way to creating a single party communist state, whether the non-communists, their allies, liked it or not. The other big argument in the book concerns the means by which the communists created this state. And you introduce the concept of war communism, which I understand you take from Lenin, but use in a uh, somewhat different way. Can you explain to the listener what what you mean by war communism and how it fits into your argument? Yeah, I think it's important not just to say, oh, the communists created a single party communist state because Mao Zedong came to to power in 1945, uh, excuse me, in 1949 in China and supported the Vietnamese with uh, military support and diplomatic support. 
I, I think it's important to think about, well, how, what did the Chinese provide to the Vietnamese communists? What did the Vietnamese communists know about communist methods of state building? Um, so I was very interested in trying to understand what's the toolbox? What's the repertoire? Uh, what are the tools that they, they used in order to transform this coalition state into this single party communist state. And so this took me a while to kind of think about. And I said, well, where did Ho Chi Minh go? What did he know, not only in 1950, but before? And I, I kind of started looking at what the Soviets were doing or what the Russians were doing during the Russian Revolution. This took me back to the Russian Civil War. And if you look closely at what's going on here, you can see that the that Lenin uh, that the Bolsheviks are using war in order to uh, develop certain, well, in order to create the single party communist state, but they're developing tools at this time. Uh, and then I also wanted to look at the tools that Mao Zedong developed uh, in the 1930s. And there's a certain amount of tools that he had access to that were coming from the Soviets, uh, coming from the Leninist model. And then I looked at what Ho Chi Minh was doing, and I noticed that he was also in the Soviet Union in the 1920s, again, in the 1930s. He was in China uh, when Mao was developing a communist model of warfare at Yan'an in the late 1930s. Um, so I know this is a little bit com complicated, Patrick, but there's there's a kind of a Eurasian arc of uh, models that were being exported, uh, that were being exchanged, uh, that were moving from from kind of the, the Soviet Union all the way to uh, northern Indochina. And I wanted to identify those models. So here are some of the tools that I talk about that come from the Soviet Union. Uh, rectification is one of these models. It's a communist model. You don't find it in Algeria. This is part of my answer to Fanon. Uh, this is a communist method of creating uh, ideological-minded uh, bureaucracy, a bureaucracy in the state, uh, the, in the army, in the police services. And this is called rectification. The idea is, is that you're going to transform the way your civil servants, the way your military officers uh, think about communism, but also think about the their relationship to the party. I uh, so that's that's one example. Patriotic emulation. This is something that Lenin developed in I believe in 1922. The idea of identifying heroes within the different classes of the society, and then projecting these uh, heroes that come from the peasant class, that come from the working class, that come from women, uh, all all different walks of life, that you will then extol and organize people around so that they support the the party and the party's endeavor and in, in particular in war so that's a second uh example the third is one that existed in the soviet union but it's one that mao will turn into a specialty it's um it's land reform uh the idea that you go into the villages you break the control of the the feudal landlords and you replace them with the party uh, so that is a way by which the party is able to extend its control further down to the village level. Uh, but it's also a way of giving land to the peasants in order to mobilize them. I don't ask my listeners or my readers to agree with this, but I do ask them to take these models, these tools uh, seriously. Another one is the cult of personality. Ho Chi Minh follows Stalin's uh, lead on that. Mao Zedong created a a cult of the personality at Yan'an. <clears throat> he will then, uh, you know, use it as he consolidates power, obviously in the late 1940s. And then once he's in power in the 1950s, 
Ho Chi Minh is doing something similar here. So those are four examples, uh, Patrick, of the tools in the war communist box, if you like. And uh, Ho Chi Minh, I guess I would just end by saying, again, don't forget that he was a part of this these international movements. A lot of people like to study Ho Chi Minh when he was in uh, Paris, which is totally, totally understandable. There's a lot going on there. But I think we've neglected what the Ho Chi Minh was doing uh, with others uh, in in Moscow, in Yan'an, and then how he would bring these tools back and implement them with other communists uh, in his his party. So I, I hope that's clear for, for you and your readers, but there's there's a toolbox out there. Whether you agree with it or not, I'm trying to convince, I'm trying to show readers that there there's a, a Eurasian arc uh, in which uh, Ho Chi Minh is dipping into in order to build this single party communist state from 1950 in and of war, somewhat like Lenin did during the, the war communism period uh, between what, 1917 or 1919 and 1922 in Russia, and then what the, the Maoists were doing in China as well. Yes, your book gives a lot of emphasis to uh, Asian and in fact global support networks of the revolution. Ho Chi Minh, as you said, he's this incredible networker. He seems to know everyone everywhere. That's <laughs> true. Um, and, uh, but, and particularly he has these very uh, important networks in Asia. Let, let's perhaps start with China. You've already mentioned China, but I wasn't quite aware of the extent of influence that the Chinese communists had on the on, on Vietnamese communism going all the way back to the 1920s. Uh, yes, he is. He really is one of the global, uh, a real revolutionary globetrotter. Um, so, you know, he he definitely, as, as some of your listeners will know, he left uh, in the 1910s. He went to France. He will, tra- you know, traverse the Atlantic. He will go to port cities in France. Uh, to uh, in, in in Great Britain, he will end up in the United States briefly, uh, and then he will uh, go to you know, Moscow and then to southern China, which is a very important southern China in the 1920s, uh, late 1920s, early 1930s. I mean, this is where he creates the Vietnamese Communist Party. It is not created in Vietnam. It is created like the Chinese Communist Party in a Chinese port. It happens to be a British uh, colonial port, Hong Kong. Uh, and then if, if you don't mind me saying, uh, Patrick, he will go further into Southeast Asia uh, to preside over the creation of the Thai Communist Party, the Malaya Communist Party. Uh, he clearly played some sort of a role in the creation of the Laotian early embryonic uh, Communist Party. Uh, so he's 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 moving in these networks, these global networks, whether you one agrees with them or not, it doesn't matter. He was part of them and he he did indeed believe in them. And this is why I get back to <clears throat> you mentioned that at the very beginning. Was Ho Chi Minh a nationalist? Of course he was. Uh, I'm willing to admit that Mao Zedong was a nationalist as well. No problem there. But he was indeed a communist. And Mao Zedong, as we know, was indeed a communist. The only point I'm trying to make here uh, is that it matters. It matters in terms of the state he wanted to create. It matters in terms of the networks within which he was moving. So Ho Chi Minh is also one of the founding fathers with Chinese and with uh, Malays, with Thais, with Laotians of Southeast Asian communism as well, at least on the continental side of things. We, 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 I don't think we need to get into what's going on in Indonesia. But again, these are wider global networks in which Ho Chi Minh was moving. Of course, the victory of the Chinese Communist Party in China's civil war in 1949 has a huge impact on the course of the war in Indochina. I wasn't quite aware 
how much? Can, can, you, can you perhaps uh, tell us a little bit more there? Yeah, um, absolutely, absolutely. I think um, internally it allowed the Vietnamese communists to do two things. There's a, a military revolution. Uh, what does that mean? Well, that means that thanks to Chinese communist assistance, military assistance, thanks to Chinese military training, uh, and this this assistance that I'm talking about is uh, it's it's heavy weapons. It's it's modern firepower. Uh, it's a little bit like the Americans helping the Ukrainians, if you don't mind me saying so. But now the Chinese were helping the Vietnamese. So that 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 was a big big change in in the war. Uh, so that allowed the Vietnamese to operate what I, I consider to be a military revolution, which will not be duplicated by any other uh, non-communist uh, national liberation movement in the history of, of the 20th century. Why? Because this allowed the Vietnamese communists to create a professional army. What does that mean? Well, again, it's something similar to what the Ukrainians have. They do indeed have a guerrilla army in, in Ukraine. I, I'm, I'm, we know that, but they also have a professional army with divisions. So the Vietnamese created a divisional army with seven divisions, with even an artillery division by Dien Bien Phu. It, it, it matters, Patrick. It does matter. So this military revolution is very important. It also allowed the Vietnamese Communist Party to take the army in to hand, uh, which they will do with these tools of which I spoke a moment ago, rectification, emulation, and we can we, we can come back to that if you like. That's one revolution. The second revolution is the political revolution uh, of which I just spoke. I won't go into details here, but from 1950, thanks to the Chinese communist victory, they had access to uh, to, to models. Uh, they had access to to about two hundred Chinese advisors came in. So just as you have advisors, uh, British, uh, American advisors helping out the Ukrainians, and and it's not a, a negative thing. It's not a positive thing. It's just a reality in war. Uh, the Chinese are providing advisors, uh, political advisors, and military advisors. That's very important. Uh, and that helps the Vietnamese communists transition to a new type of war and a new type of state, as we've already discussed. Internationally, third thing I think is, is important is that the Americans were following all this. Again, whether one agrees with the Americans or not doesn't really matter in terms of what I'm trying to demonstrate in my book, is that the Americans were looking at what was going on in Indochina in terms of a global vision, uh, in terms of a global uh, uh, what's the word, containment policy, excuse me, that they had been developing. It had been limited to, to Europe, to Western Eurasia uh, until 1950, but with the victory of the Chinese communists and, of course, with the outbreak of the Korean War in June of 1950, this really did globalize American containment policy, and they saw this as a the the Chinese Communist victory, the war uh, in Korea as a threat to their hold over the Pacific. Uh, so this is a, an argument which I make uh, in the book. Is this helps explain why the Americans intervened indirectly uh, in Indochina? They support the French. They're going to provide arms to the French, napalm, uh, planes. And this makes the Indochina War the most violent war of decolonization in the 20th century. Nothing of the sort occurs in Algeria or in Indonesia. Again, this has nothing to do about the levels of, of nationalism among Indonesian Republicans or Algerian uh, nationalist. Uh, it's the nature of the war that happens to develop uh, on the southern flank of China and on the western rim of what I think is, a, is an American maritime empire. So the Americans intervene indirectly behind the French in Indochina. And don't forget, they intervene directly 
in Korea. So that's the third thing to answer your question about the importance of the the Chinese communist victory. I would say also the, the Korean War. Uh, this really does commit the Americans. So for me, uh, the American war in Indochina, I'm not the only person to say this, but it certainly begins in 1950, not in 1954, certainly not in 1965. Your point about the Chinese assistance to the Vietnamese communists and the establishment of a regular army, this is another thing that I, one of the many things I've learned from your book. I think when most people think of the First and Second Indochina Wars, they tend to think of guerrilla warfare. And, of course, there is some of that. But you show that the Vietnamese communists actually won the First Indochina War through conventional warfare, using a regular army, the, the People's Army of Vietnam, which they, they had been building up. Um, can you perhaps say a little bit about the importance of, of the establishment of this regular army? Yeah, I don't think it can be underestimated. If I can come back just to 1945, um, when when the war breaks out, uh, the, the first Indochina war breaks out, I, I think it's important to remember that, yes, as Ho Chi Minh said to an American journalist in Paris in 1946, he, he told him, we will fight a guerrilla war. No, we do not have heavy arms. No, we do not have a professional army, but we do have nationalism. Um, and this is the famous uh, parable that he tells of the tiger fighting the elephant, the tiger, of course, being the Vietnamese tiger, which will attack the, the big French modern army elephant. Uh, at night, it will attack it, uh, th- jump on its back, rip off parts of its back. It'll be a long war, a slow war, but eventually the Vietnamese will win because of nationalism. Again, I get back to your first question. Nationalism is important. Uh, I, I think we see it in Ukraine right now, but it's it's one factor and it's an important factor, but it's not the only factor. So you have this kind of idea of the tiger guerrilla warfare fighting the elephant modern warfare. That is certainly the case uh, between 1945 and 50, but everything changes uh, from 1950 uh, because of what we've just discussed, the, 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 the aid which the Chinese provided, the training which they provided. But I would say one thing which is really important here is that during that kind of tiger versus the elephant period, uh, the Vietnamese communist leadership understood the importance of developing, even before 1950, a modern professional army. Did it have divisions before 1950? No. Uh, Was it guerrilla-based? Yes. Did it avoid engaging the French head-on in in conventional battle? Yes. But what is very important here, and I think we see this in Ukraine as well since 2014, is that they knew, even from as early as 1946, that they had to create a, the, 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 the start of a professional army, which meant what? Which meant that they had to have a radio system, a radio uh, division within the army. They had to have an intelligence systems within the army. They had to have a logistics system within the army. They had to eventually have training programs within the army that it couldn't just be. And again, this is not negative, and I'm not implying that all guerrillas are ragtag, ragtag armies. I'm not saying that. But the Vietnamese had, they understood early on that they had to be in a position to be able to be there, to actually be there in 1950 when the Chinese arrived at the border in order to be able to use this modern equipment that the Chinese were going to be able to give them. I think we see something similar going on in North Korea. We see it here in Vietnam because had the Vietnamese not had the the, the embryon, if I can put it that way, of an army in 1950, I do believe that modern weapons would have just rotted, not rotted, excuse me, rusted rusted at the border because if you don't have an army that has the the training already to use it 
because that the Battle of Kaobang, the first conventional battle which the Vietnamese win, that was in October of 1950. So whatever the weaknesses of the Vietnamese army were from 45 to 50, whatever the weaknesses of the tiger were, and they were many, the tiger was in a position, if I can put it that way, from 1950 to start to turn itself into an elephant. And again, that process would be full of bitter uh, defeats between 50 and 54. But when we get to the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, and it was a, it was an incredible battle. It was a violent battle. It was the most violent battle of decolonization of the 20th century, in my opinion. But that tiger that was there, it wanted to be an elephant. And when I say Patrick, it wanted to be an elephant. It fought trench warfare. Gorillas never fight trench warfare ever. And that's why French officers, some of whom had seen World War I, referred to Dien Bien Phu as a Verdun. And to some extent, if you look at the the, the, the photos of the battlefield, well, that's what the, the Vietnamese tiger did. It fought like an elephant. It won uh, that battle. And we can't take that away. And I wouldn't want to take it away from the Vietnamese. So, yeah, I think you, again, you ask another excellent question. Uh, the, the military revolution is extremely uh, important. And that it's that process that goes from 1945 to 1954, the, the, the desire of this tiger to turn itself into uh, an elephant. I would just, I won't, I won't go into this, but I would say that uh, that came with a uh, huge social costs uh, for the Vietnamese uh, people as well. That type of uh, warfare, uh, conventional battles, eight and all between 1950 and 54. The book lays out all the different dimensions of the struggle against the French, and I don't think we're going to have time to go into all of them, but I do want to mention one of them. You show that the, the French launched a very effective economic war on the DRV with, with the apparent objective of starving uh, the Vietnamese forces. Can you tell us a little bit about this economic warfare and, and how the Vietnamese attempted to circumvent it? Yeah, this this is this is one of the unknown chapters of the of the French uh, Indochina War. Uh, there's, to my knowledge, uh, this has never been written about. It's not that I want to vaunt myself for having uh, written about it in my book. To be quite honest, uh, I stumbled across it while I was going through all of these documents in the French military archives about which I spoke at the beginning here, and I, I discovered that there was a there was an economic aspect to this. Uh, which existed from the beginning. There was always an attempt by the part of the French to stop the Vietnamese, their adversaries, from supplying themselves, from feeding themselves, uh, from trading with Thailand, for example, from trading with southern China. Uh, And so there was this economic dimension from the beginning to the end of the French-Indochina War. Um, I knew that. I knew that to some extent from earlier work I had done on kind of uh, commercial networks with Southeast Asia, as uh, as you may know. What I didn't realize was the extent to which the French would go uh, from 1950 when the war was internationalized. I didn't realize the extent to which the French army, and they must have had the backing of the French political class. Uh, to what extent, I don't yet know, but I'm working on that now. Uh, but they would they organized a systematic economic war against the Vietnamese from 1950 and then in particular from 1952. What does that mean? That means the mobilization above all of the Air Force. And this is something that the Americans were doing in Korea and the French knew this. They were following closely what the Americans were doing during the Korean War. They, the, the French began what I do call in my book strategic warfare. Uh, strategic warfare, as we know from World War II, means that you target the industries, you target 
to some extent, civilians as well and during World War II uh, to wipe out their capacity to feed themselves, to supply themselves, uh, this sort of thing. So the French bombed industries, but of course, the Vietnamese didn't really have uh, industrial development, much less than the, the Koreans did uh, for reasons I, I won't get into. And then the French began bombing the capacity of the Vietnamese to feed themselves. That meant what? Ironically, that meant bombing dikes, dams that the French themselves had built during the colonial period in a bid to, yes, and this is quotes that come from the organizers on the French side of this, to starve the Vietnamese and to defeat, to increase the, the, the suffering, I think we have to say this, the suffering of the Vietnamese civilian population so that they would stop supporting the, the communists. Again, we see this uh, in other wars. There's nothing new about what the French are doing. It's just that we've never realized the extent to which they went to do this. So bombing was uh, a big a big part of this. Uh, bombing, the, the bombing was part of it. The other part of it was actually uh, rice wars. And this will be the last example I give. I think I give some pretty interesting examples. Uh, the war went into rice to the rice fields. Uh, there was two harvests in Vietnam. Uh, let's just say in, in April and again in October. It's not that case all over Vietnam, but in the the the, the key areas that Ho Chi Minh controlled, where he was getting his food, the French either bombed or they sent troops in to take the harvest before the Vietnamese uh, could get it. So one of the things I try to show uh, in this uh, in in the book is the um, the totalizing aspect of this war, uh, the, the extent to which the French and the Vietnamese communists as well, uh, they expanded this war, to be quite honest, Patrick, into people's stomachs. Again, we see this in other wars, even again to, in Ukraine to some extent. Uh, today, there's there's economic aspect that, that's going on. Um, so this is something important in my book. And I, and I thank you for asking that question because it's something that I'm working on uh, right now uh, as well. Before we get back to the war in Vietnam, I'd just like to, to move to a, to a related topic. That is something which is which I understand uh, is quite a sensitive topic today. Um, that is the Vietnamese communist's own imperialist ambitions in Indochina uh, and in particular Ho's contribution to building communist parties and states in Laos and Cambodia, which is a kind of a communist imperialism. In fact, just as the French are establishing their associated states of Indochina, the Vietnamese communists are trying to establish their own empire in Laos and Cambodia. Am I kind of uh, exaggerating uh, what you're trying to argue? No, you're you're not. You're you're not. Um, I, I, I think. One of the things I try to show in the book as well, and I hesitated before including that chapter, but in the end I said, no, I have to include this chapter on uh, Ho Chi Minh's Indochina, uh, Ho Chi Minh's Associated States. That's the title of that, that chapter. Uh, so as you, as you so well put it, uh, just as the French created Associated States in 1949 and 50 for Vietnam, for Laos and for Cambodia. They worked with Sihanouk in Laos. They worked with Sisababong. Uh, of course, in Vietnam, it was with Baodai. Uh, they created what they called associated states. But I think what readers don't realize is that the Vietnamese communists were following closely what the French were doing. So there's kind of a mirror effect going on here. And they created their own associated states of Indochina. I think the evidence is just absolutely overwhelming. And again, it's I rely I, 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 
on Vietnamese publications and all sorts of different sources, but that come from the Vietnamese communists themselves and which show without a doubt that they are creating their, their associated states as a reaction to what the French were doing. So there's a geopolitical side to it. But what I try to show as well, and I'm relying on some of the new imperial history that's going on, we're, we're moving beyond, I think some readers, I'm sorry, some listeners probably know that uh, it's not just the French Empire, it's not just the British Empire that historians are working on. We're now working on, let's be honest, the Russian Empire. We see it with what's going on now. Uh, the American Empire, we've done that for a long time, but we're starting to work on Asian empires and other empires as well, the Ottoman Empire, uh, etc. So I, 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 Patrick, I, I kind of tapped into that historiography and I got to be honest with you, it was extremely helpful. It was extremely helpful. So am I trying to write... Uh, an accusatory history of Vietnamese communist imperialism. Not, not really, but I am trying to show that it's not just a reaction to what the French are doing. And it's also the Vietnamese are coming out of their own imperial history, which predates the French, uh, which goes back centuries. And I think it makes for a very interesting, it, it, it shows us something interesting about the uh, about the Vietnamese, just as that would show us something interesting about the Chinese, about the Americans, or about the French, you know, Third Republic and what they did in Indochina and Algeria. I know that doesn't please a lot of readers. It certainly doesn't please some of my readers in, in communist Vietnam, but I'm not here to please readers all the time. But I am trying to to show that there's something bigger going on. So Thank you again for asking about that chapter. I think it's an important chapter. I would just add one thing, if you don't mind, is that the Vietnamese are, that means that the Vietnamese from 1950 in particular, the Vietnamese communists are deeply involved in state building in Laos and Cambodia, just as the French were, uh, but it's a counter state building. And, and so they're on the tip of this arc, you know, this Eurasian arc that I'm talking about. But I think it's interesting to note that the Vietnamese communists, they 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 didn't apply the the, the entire toolbox that they were applying in Vietnam. Uh, so they 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 used different tools. They developed different tools that they would use in Laos and Cambodia. And um, uh, with results that um, we we can talk about a little bit later, but after 1954, uh, which 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 have the different differing results in Cambodia on the one hand and in Laos on the other. Yeah, look, I, I found that that chapter really really fascinating. Um, but if we we need to return to the war, one of the themes of the book is the the enormous suffering uh, that the struggle against the French caused for the peasantry in particular. And uh, you use a metaphor somewhere that the, the peasantry were caught between the hammer and the anvil of the French and the DRV forces, which I think was quite evocative. Eventually, this results in famines in, in central northern Vietnam in 1952-53, both because of the, the French economic warfare that you just talked about, as well as the DRV's own demands on the peasantry to support the, the war effort. Can you perhaps sort of just describe uh, the sort of situation at that time? Dire would be my first answer uh, for this period between 1950 and 54. It, it was difficult before, but now it becomes absolutely dire for the peasant population. Is it all of the peasant population in Vietnam? No. It's in these areas now which are more and more mobilized for these conventional battles. 
so the peasantry, for example, living in a zone, uh, it's kind of, I tried to show that there's important zones south of Hanoi. We have this uh, idea of like everything's going on on the border. Yes and no. There's a zone south of Hanoi, which is very important. It's in central Vietnam. It's controlled by the Vietnamese communism, communists. It's what we call zones four and five. Yes, in the north, you have the upland zones, which border on China. Uh, it's the northern zone. Uh, and that, too, is a, is a very important zone, which is touched by this mobilization for conventional warfare. So when I say mobilization, I think there's two things that we have to think about. On the one hand, the Vietnamese Communist Party is mobilizing the population like never before. And this never happens in the South. They're mobilizing the population because they've incorporated the draft. The Algerians never incorporated the, the draft, the conscription. A conscription army was declared in 1949. A general mobilization was declared in 1950. What does this mean? That means that the state is going down through these tools I talked about in order to draft young men. Also, to collect rice, I won't get into the details, but the, the state now needs rice from the villages, from the peasants, like never before. In a gorilla, when you had the tiger, the tiger was kind of eating off, if you will allow me to say this, off the villages. Often the, the tiger soldiers were villagers themselves. Something else is going on now with these seven divisions I talked about a moment ago. They have to eat, and they eat a lot of rice. So that means that the state, the communist state, is going down and taking rice. They can say that this is for nationalism all they want, but for the peasants, this is a serious situation because they have to give that rice. But they didn't have a lot of rice anyways uh, to, to give. And this is where things get very, very precarious for the Vietnamese peasant populations, again, Patrick, south of Hanoi in this vast area in central Vietnam and in the upland area bordering on the uh, on China, where there's not a lot of rice being grown in that upland area anyways, because the French control the Red River Delta and the Mekong Delta. So this is this mobilization is making it very difficult for Vietnamese peasants. Second thing. It's the French economic warfare. I won't repeat what I said a moment ago, but the man you cited, this uh, between the, the hammer and the anvil, he was one of the organizers of the economic warfare, the systematic economic warfare between 1950 and 1954, uh, which really came into its own in 1952. The French were trying to stop the Vietnamese communists from getting access to that rice from feeding their army. Uh, and that meant that the French, as I, I mentioned a moment ago, they're going into the villages. And this is what's absolutely fascinating. But for the, for the Vietnamese peasants, it's tragic. It's brutal. It's violent. Uh, I, I, I don't know how to, I try to explain it to readers, but they are caught between the anvil and the hammer, as you said. And that's why I cited one of the architects of the French economic warfare. He knew what was going on because he was one of those organizing it. So you have this, this double attack by the French and by the Vietnamese communists on the Vietnamese peasant population. And it does trigger, Christian Lenz has showed this as well for the uplands in northwestern Vietnam. I think there's much more to be done on this. I hope others will get involved. Uh, but this is important to understanding the end of the Indochina War, because yes, Patrick, the, the Vietnamese communists won the war with this conventional battle, but they negotiated and they accepted only half of Vietnam at the Geneva Accords that were signed in 1954. One of the reasons I argue, and I th I'm, I'm saying this modestly, but I think it's an important reason, is that socially, 
economically, Ho Chi Minh knew that he had exhausted the peasant population, that he was driving them into the ground with the French. He was driving them into the ground and that if he pushed any further, my argument is that he he risked bringing down the whole communist temple, this single party state on top of his head. Yeah, look, when I was reading the book, I was I was waiting for you to discuss the, the famous land reform program uh, that, that they launched in 1953. And I thought, oh, maybe it's already been done. He's going to leave it out. Uh, but then at the end, you kind of you put it in there perfectly to relate to your argument. You know, when, when they, you know, they, they dispossessed the so-called feudalists of the land, they killed and persecuted thousands of people. And rather than attribute this to the implementation of, you know, Orthodox communism, you explain the reason for the land reform program in quite a novel way. Uh, and it just, it kind of, it, it blew me away at, at that part, point in the book. Can you tell the listeners what lay behind their decision to embark on this full-scale class war right on the eve of the battle of Dien Bien Phu? Yeah, well, yeah, you're really, you're really good. Yeah, I was going to bring, I was going to flow into this, uh, but I see that you're on it already, which is quite impressive. Yes, that was exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to deal with the land reform differently because I'm convinced I could be wrong. Maybe someone will tell him I am, but it seems to me that land reform, the timing of land reform is linked to what we have just discussed, Patrick. And it it really only gets started uh, in this 1952-53 period. And I think that Ho Chi Minh, others in his party, they realized that they were in trouble and that if they were going to take it to the French, if they were going to really organize this big battle of Dien Bien Phu uh, in particular, they had to implement war communism, uh, at least the Maoist form of war communism, which meant land reform. They had to give something to the peasants they were driving into the ground with the French again since about 1950 in central and in northern Vietnam. Uh, So they had to go into the villages with this bureaucratic rectified class with the army. Uh, They had to do this uh, now, which means early 1953, and then they had to accelerate it in 1953 and 54, again, which meant that they needed to break the the feudalists, the landlords who were controlling things. To what extent that's true, I have some doubts. But one thing is they had to put their hands on rice like never before, but they also had to mobilize and promise to the peasant populations in central and northern Vietnam we need your help one last time. It's similar to what the, the Chinese communists were doing in the late 1940s. Uh, we need you to join up for the army. We need you to join these work crews to fix the bridges. We need you to carry medicines. Uh, you know, the mobilization was absolutely extraordinary uh, that was going on between 1554 and they had to mobilize 250,000 people, civilians, one last time for, for DNB and Fu. So, yes, my argument here is that you cannot understand land reform without hooking it up to the military political situation, which developed uh, from 1952 in particular until the end of the, the Indochina War. So uh, this is why I combined. It's a long chapter. I know it's a little bit maybe too long, but I put land reform in my discussion of the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. And, and, and you, you put your finger spot on, Patrick, on what I was trying to do in the, the denouement of, of my book. 
when uh, you, you read about the land reform uh, program and the, the thousands who you know, executed and persecuted in ways, it, sometimes it's, it's 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 just numbers. But there's one particular example that you gave. I thought was very poignant of this uh, very prominent uh, patriotic anti-colonial businesswoman, uh, Wen Tinam. I think. And can you perhaps say a little bit about her and why? Yeah, you, you sort of gave her example. Yeah, because she's symbolic in a way. Uh, she's symbolic of the communist decision to put an end to this coalition we talked about that dates from 1945 and 46 with non-communist anti-colonialists who were willing to work with them. What I mean by that, this is a remarkable woman. She's been talked about thanks to Vietnamese, French, uh, and American researchers. We know a lot about her. But she supported the Vietnamese communists. She supported the anti-colonialist movement. Uh, she was considered to be the mother of the resistance by the Vietnamese communists themselves. Uh, the, the leadership knew her. Ho Chi Minh knew her. But they decided to sacrifice her as an example, as kind of a, a war communist trials example in 1953. So I made a point of including that because we can't avoid, uh, the, we can't gloss over what, what Ho Chi Minh himself authorized. The idea that Ho Chi Minh wasn't involved with this is just disingenuous, and, and, and I refuse that. Uh, they organized her, her execution. She was no longer the resistance mother. She was no longer a member of a coalition, anti-colonialist coalition. She was a, she was a terrible feudalist. And so they had her executed for the example uh, so that it was clear uh, what the communists were going to do now, uh, that the feudalist class had now been excluded from the coalition state. And so this, too, is yet another example. Uh, the Vietnamese communist Ho Chi Minh at the head of that, uh, he, he, he said, we will create this communist state and you will not stop us. And as an example, of this communization process, of this war communism, which I try to develop, uh, they decided to kill this woman, uh, an, an all-male party too, uh, or almost all-male, but at least those who made that decision, they executed uh, the resistance mother of their own coalition government in order to push through this communization of their state and to push through land reform and to exclude, excuse me, the, the feudalist class, which to them she now represented and only represented. If we could zoom out for a moment and tell me if I'm misinterpreting you, but it seems to me that your, your book is at least partially a response to the, let's say, romantic view that's quite common in the West right now, particularly amongst students, I find that is that the, um, the first Indochina war, the, the result was victory of the nationalists fighting to win their country back from the colonialists. Um, so it's an easy sort of moral uh, equation there. But it seems to me that you argue that it's really war communism, that is a communist state forged through warfare. That's what is responsible for delivering victory at Dien Bien Phu, for better or for worse. Do I have that yeah, I th right? Yeah, I think that's largely true. I don't know if I'm really trying to argue against there, – there is a historiography out there. There's a school out there that does tend to romanticize uh, Ho Chi Minh in the struggle against the French and then the struggle against the Americans. I mean, I, I think, as I said earlier, the Vietnamese communists led the war, an anti-colonialist war, and, and they did win at Dien Bien Phu. We can't take that away from them, and I don't want to take it away from them. They, they were impressive. They, 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 they fought the French in ways few others did, uh, you know, uh, in, in this long Indo-Algerian war I was talking about a moment. Again, I'm not minimizing what the Algerians did, but we have to recognize that there was no Dien Bien Phu in Algeria. That's just a reality.
at the same time, I think in 2000, in the 2010s, when I was preparing this book and, and today in 2022, I think we have uh, much more sophisticated war studies that are out there. We have uh, these economic studies I was talking about. We have, I think we're, we're away from the, the, the end of the Cold War. We're away from the anti-war movement, you know, against the Americans and that sort of thing. I think we know now, too, that the Chinese communists, the Soviets, uh, and, and the Vietnamese as well, uh, they, they have done some very problematic things. And so I guess to answer your question is to, to quote Mao, if I can quote Mao, let a hundred flowers bloom. And so I think that was kind of my something that I wanted to do is just let the evidence speak for itself and then take things uh, in theoretical ways that I wanted to, to do it. So is nationalism important? Yes. Does it explain everything? As many historians have said in the 1960s and 70s, no, it does not. Uh, there's other things that are going on. And if you want to really understand how the Vietnamese, to answer Franz Fanon's question that we started with at the beginning, how the Vietnamese brought down the French army, the elephant uh, at Dien Bien Phu in 1954, Uh, It's not enough just to talk about nationalism. We have to talk about these other factors. And one of the main factors that explains it for me is war communism, which was manifest at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in May of 1954. Even though it's just come out this year, the book's already received rave reviews among scholars in Western countries. My guess is that the book may not be looked upon quite that favorably in official circles in Vietnam. Can I ask if you've had any feedback on the book from Vietnamese scholars in, in Vietnam or indeed in other, other, other countries around the world? Not yet in Vietnam. It is true with my previous book, Vietnam, A New History. I, I got into trouble, uh, for example, on, on, on a number of things. I'm still waiting to hear. The book came out officially in March of 2022, uh, so perhaps we need a little bit more time. I, I No, to answer your question, I have not uh, heard back yet. I do think some of the chapters will get me in trouble, uh, perhaps a little bit in, in Vietnam with certain maybe official historians who don't like the idea that I, I you know, that the, there's more to it than a his heroic uh, nationalist struggle that explains the Vietnamese communist victory in 1954. So, yes, I think that could be a problem. Certainly my chapter on Indo-Chinese, uh, on Vietnamese empire building of a revolutionary kind, I'm assuming that will probably get me into a little bit of trouble in in Vietnam and perhaps also in Laos and Cambodia as as well. But uh, I have not heard yet. It is true in France. uh, It's interesting. In France, it's a mixed bag. Um, I have, uh, I do publish in French, as some of your listeners may know, and uh, some on the French side, they're, they're more than happy to have me talk about war communism, about Ho Chi Minh using this toolbox, creating a single party state, etc. But some people are not happy about me talking about uh, the French economic war, uh, strategic bombing, the bombing of the Vietnamese and the brutal impact of uh, French warfare on Vietnamese civilians. Um, that's got me, oh, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's got me into trouble, but certainly uh, it's there's the French are much more interested in what's going on in Algeria. So it's quite a surprise. The last month or so, I've published a number of things which have shown that, you know, the, the Indochina, the French Indochina war between 1945 and 1954, and I say this in, in the French publications, was the most violent war of decolonization of the 20th century. And that for the French blows some minds. And so there's some people who aren't happy with this. But I cite Bernard Fall, who's certainly not a, you know, not a communist uh, 
Frenchman. Uh, I think many of your less listeners will know Bernard Fall, but he's the one who said in 1965 that the Indochina War between 1945 and 1954 killed one million uh, Vietnamese uh, who were mainly civilians. So that's gotten me into a, a little bit of um, some debates in France to answer your question. This may be an impertinent question, given that you've just finished a big book published this year, but can I ask if you're working on a new project, then uh, can you give us a little insight into what that project might be? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I have to write it. I'm a little bit behind the gun here, but um, uh, I'm slated to write kind of a a global history of the wars for Vietnam from, uh, from the 18th century to the present. So I want to write kind of a kind of a geopolitical, kind of a global history. Uh, so I'll, I won't be going to the ground level as I, I like to do, but as I think you and maybe some of your listeners might know, I do like to go to the global level every now and then. So this one's going to be kind of a global take uh, to explain why Vietnam, maybe a little bit like Ukraine. It was before the, the war in Ukraine started, but I, I stumbled across a book on, on Ukraine and, and the idea that there's certain places in the world for all sorts of different reasons but they become these places where empires like to go, they like to grow, and they also collide. So that's the object of my next book, is to explain why Vietnam was so important to so many people over such a long period of time. Chris Gosha, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, The Road to Dien Bien Phu, A History of the First Indochina War, published by Princeton University Press in 2022. Thank you, Patrick, and thank you to your listeners. It was, a, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other podcasts about books that deal with Vietnam's modern history, like Chris's award-winning earlier book, Vietnam, A New History, uh, published by Basic Books in 2016, or Sean McHale's The First Vietnam War, Sovereignty and the Fracture of the South, 1945-56, to published by Cambridge in 2021. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes.